Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And this is our 91st episode, and, and as always, we are so proud to welcome in uh, Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Carl Erskine. And, and Carl, I was just telling you off air, but I'll tell uh, all of our listeners as well, uh, we have 91 episodes, and uh, you have been on the most, and that is 12. You have been on 12. I was counting right beforehand, so I can't thank you enough for joining us as often as you do. If, if the good fortune had been 92, you would have matched my birthday. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I was thinking the same thing, but, but it, we're, we're one off, and, and maybe, you know, we can – you're 90, 92 years young, but we can say you're 91 for this episode. That's good. <laughs> well, uh, happy July 4th to, uh, to you and your family, Carl. And I, I thought that we could come on close to the holiday and, and kind of just, you know, go from there about uh, some of your July 4th memories, whether it's uh, Brooklyn Dodgers related, whether anything pops into your head or just, uh, uh, you know, natural uh, American holiday memory? Well, of course, uh, you go back to the 1940s and uh, 50s, there was always a standard holiday event menu for baseball, doubleheaders. We, we played doubleheaders on, I think, all uh, major holidays. And, uh, of course, July 4th, right in the middle of the season, um, I'm sure uh, most of my 12 seasons in uh, the majors that we played a doubleheader on the 4th of July. And instead of celebrating with a picnic, <laughs> that had to come later when we would find an off day sometime. But, uh, yeah, well, July, in those days, um, the dugouts were not conditioned with air conditioning. <laughs> If you're playing it, if you're playing in St. Louis on a on Fourth of July, it had to be near a hundred degrees or more. And um, there's an old saying that if uh, the dugouts were very hot, and uh, but they were tw- they were 20 degrees hotter if you were behind. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, there's a lot of memories about the old the old dugout. And, of course, I, I found this out later. Um, the fans are amazing. The fans have called me over the years and told me things about my career that I never read, heard, or remembered. And um, just recently, I had a call. Uh, this fan was very astute. He, he researched and he knew the Dodgers inside and out. And he said to me in 1953, it was my only 20-game season, 
but I got off to a kind of a rocky start, and uh, I was only five and four at the All-Star break. Well, you know, the All-Star break comes in July, in the middle, rather in the middle of, the, of July. But he said, Carl, did you realize that in uh, July of 1953, uh, you won six games in July? I said, no, no kidding. He said, not only that, you saved the game. And then, uh, uh, so you, uh, you had four, you had four, you had four complete games in July, and a total of six wins. Well, that made up a lot for what I did get in the first half of the season. And um, so the second half of the season, I was fifteen and two. <laughs> That's unbelievable. But. But when you mentioned July to me, now I remember something that I didn't know happened only because of a fan reminding me about my uh, career. <laughs> and so so I appreciate the calls and letters I get from fans, emails. Uh, they're always telling me something that I don't remember about my, my own career. Well, you really made an impact on a, a lot of fans just from posting this uh, this on certain Brooklyn Dodgers Facebook groups. Everybody immediately goes, oh, I see. <laughs> um, you know, even in my own town here of Anderson, Indiana, which is right in the middle of the Midwest, uh, I can be on a street or pump of gas at a station, and I'll hear a voice calling to me, hey, always. <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, the Brooklynese have found its way in Indiana. Well, you know, there's, there's a few connections with the Dodgers. Of course, we always talk about uh, uh, your Indiana uh, uh, compadre, Mr. Gil Hodges, and I, I want to get to Gil in a little bit, but um, just because I thought it would, because he, he's going to be up for the Hall of Fame once more, I thought that would be apropos to talk about. But 1953, um, you it, it's hard for pitchers to get MVP votes, and just to let you know, you were ninth in the MVP voting that year. I think that says a lot about how valuable you were in the year of 1953? I always felt like, not not because I had my best year there, but in 53, but if you looked at the numbers of the lineup that year, they had fantastic numbers. I think five, it might have been five different players drove in 100 runs. Um, I could be corrected there, and I'm sure I will be now that we've said it on the air. But, uh, <laughs> Like they are today, 
the grass wasn't clipped like it is today. The gloves weren't as big and as light as they are today. The infielders wear fairly big gloves today, and they're very light. Uh, some of them are made out of kangaroo hide, which is a very thin, very light material. <laughs> but the defense in baseball, and we're speaking here in 2019, the defense today, even in the top minor leagues, is absolutely one of the most beautiful things to watch. It's it's almost like a, a acrobatic uh, performance, especially around second base. Mm-hmm. And, uh, outfield catches and uh, and uh, of course the shift is the shift is taken down some of the spectacular plays because they're all bunched in one part of the field and the plays that come to them are not always very difficult because of uh, the concentration of fielders. But I just think baseball needs to blow the horn a little bit louder about the marvelous experience to watch a game and see the defensive plays. And of course, the pros make them look so easy. I don't think the fans appreciate how, how good some of these plays really are. Well, that's actually a good segue, too, uh, to uh, players like Bill Hodges and even uh, in more modern times, Steve Fernandez, and, and how when it comes to the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, you have a player like Keith Hernandez who batted something along the lines of 300 for his entire career, but also strung together about 11 straight gold gloves. And yet there's never been a proper measurement of defense from a statistical standpoint. And all these offensive numbers are what a lot of voters have used uh, when it comes to the Hall of Fame. And But that, that seems to be changing, and I think it, it gives uh, – you know, a, a place for the Veterans Committee to once again reassess Gil Hodges' uh, uh, you know Hall of Fame credentials, especially when compared to his his uh, contemporaries of the time. Well, Gil was a quiet man, and his personality in Brooklyn uh, just was able to somehow the chemistry between how he played, how he played defense. He went through some tremendous. Uh, Slumps, and the fans never booed Hodges in Ebbets Field, and we all thought that that was he was the only person ever played at Ebbets Field that never was subject to a boo sometime in their career. But the fans picked up on this chemistry of this quiet big man just doing his job every day, good or bad at the plate, but he was, his defense was flawless. And how many outs he recorded that were bad throws from the infielders trying to make a, a tough play. Uh, he would dig them out of the dirt. His uh, reach was uh, long. He, had, he was a big man, and he could reach and still touch the base. Uh, so he saved so many throws at first base, which is not in the record book. Uh, but his major contribution besides being a, an outstanding player. You know, he was the premier first baseman in, in all the 1950s. Uh, there was not, not another first baseman in the league that was recognized at first base like Hodges during the 1950s. Uh, but the thing he did that is not in the record book 
and I watched this happen over and over. In the early years of Jackie's experience in the big leagues, uh, there was a lot of plays around second base where there was a lot of bodies flying in and out, and there was always a tension in the early years of some kind of confrontation at second base with Jackie. Mm-hmm. And the players did fly uh, slide extra hard, and there was a lot of body contact down there. Well, Hodges was a peacemaker, and unspoken, the league players in the National League coming to Ebbets Field respected Hodges. He was just that kind of a person that was respected. So he would go down to second base when there was a pilot, and he'd throw bodies off of the pile to prevent a, an outbreak. And to me, Pee Wee Reese was a very, very genuine uh, Hall of Famer on his own, no question. But there was always a tagline with Pee Wee, and he played alongside of Jackie Robinson. Well, so did Hodges on the other side play alongside of Jackie. And he kept peace on the infield in these early years when there could have been uh, a fight that Mr. Ricky prayed would never happen. He said, Jackie, if, if you ever fight on the field, our experiment is done. We're, we're going to fail. Hodges, historically, should get lots of credit for keeping the peace on the infield. Now, I know that doesn't interpret into votes for the Hall of Fame. But at the same time, historically, you should not, they should not uh, forget that Bill Hodges, the quiet man, made a quiet strength on the infield that prevented lots of potential fights that could have spoiled the whole Jackie Robinson story. And uh, I wish I could preach this sermon to the committee. Yeah, and that should be brought up in, in some, you know, you're, you're the first one that I've uh, spoken to that has brought it up. Uh, um, you know, Gil Jr. was on the podcast uh, talking about his father's Hall of Fame credentials. And he he's rather, um, he's good about uh, the fact that, unfortunately, uh, his father, you know, tragically was not able to uh, put together a managerial career that was uh, that had length enough to really be considered uh, specifically for managerial purposes. Uh, but I believe combined with, with what you're talking about, combined with the stats as a first baseman at the time, and how many, especially how many, uh, how uh, he would just produce runs after runs every year, um, I, I think that the combination of 1969 as well as, uh, uh, his playing career puts him over the top in my book, and, and, and the stuff that you're discussing regarding the, the Jackie Robinson uh, experiment that that turned uh, that that was extremely successful, I think is is just that many more cherries on top. There's at least 14 cherries uh, to to also use the number uh, Gil Hodges number. That's interesting. Uh, well. The fans, the fans have an influence, I think, on the committee, uh, because the committee members that vote now, uh, some of them, of course, were not able to see Gil play, and that's a disadvantage when you're trying to vote somebody on a uh, on a, on the Hall of Fame. But also Hodges, uh, he he was a. I've often said this. 
when I looked around the team when I was on the mound, and Campanella was catching, Hodges was at first base, Jackie was at second, Pee Wee was at short. Now, any one of those players I just mentioned could have been captain uh, or could have been a manager. Campanella would have been an excellent manager if his mm-hmm. life hadn't been shortened in baseball by the accident he had. Hodges, of course, became a manager. And Jackie was a candidate to be a manager and smart enough to be a manager. Peewee would have been an excellent manager. So we had this group of guys on the infield <laughs> that I think the infield itself ought to be in the Hall of Fame. Right. The problem with the Hall of Fame, in my mind, is they will not combine the career of a manager who was also a player. They right. will not combine the two in looking at Hall of Fame stats, and I think that's wrong. I think that a person like Gil, who played tremendously over a long period of time and then became the miracle manager of the Mets hmm. uh, and was spoken about by the players, Tom Seavers and others on that Mets team, that he was a, a character builder. He did far more than teach baseball. And I think if you don't combine the two, you don't get the impact of how a player contributed to the game. And so I always objected to the fact that they wouldn't consider a player either as a manager or a player. But there's been several managers who are also great players. And uh, I think they could be combined. And in Hodges', Hodges case, that would help him. You can't uh, uh, talk about 1969 with the players who, who were part of that team without them bringing up Gil Hodges within a matter of seconds. Uh, it, it, it's clear what he meant to them, um, and and they still to this day get very emotional about uh, uh, you know his life cut short, and it's it's I'm just hoping that finally you know especially with Jones still around that they can uh, do justice. Uh, to the Hodges family as well as Brooklyn uh, themselves, and um, I, I'm I'd like to go around the horn too. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of curious your thoughts about to to tangent a little bit about Billy Cox, the third baseman on the infield. Um, considering you know, obviously he was he was a little lighter offensively, but you know he hit 291 in the year of 1953. And I'm kind of curious your thoughts about Billy Cox. It's interesting you mentioned him because I did not mention him when I was talking about the, the great infield. But the greatest lineup the Dodgers ever had in Brooklyn included Billy Cox in my mind. And in order to get Jackie's bat in the lineup in the later years, of, in the latter part of the 1950s, in order to get Jackie's bat in the lineup, he actually played left field. I bet you a lot of people would remember that Rollins had played left field. Uh, and I'm not positive of this, but I think even in a couple of World Series games, Jackie played left field. But to have the lineup with uh, Jackie in it and also Billy Cox, because Cox played third base, which was Jackie's position late in his career. But uh, Jackie would play left field. And when I look at that lineup, I say that that was Gillian who led off, 
and uh, Reese, who hit second, and uh, Duke Sider hit third, and then Jackie, I think, hit fourth. <clears throat> when that lineup, when you put that lineup on paper and look at the stats, <laughs> and that includes Billy Cox. Now, the one thing that happened to Billy, he was very quiet. He didn't say much at all. He and Preacher Row roomed together. And uh, we used to watch Preacher and Billy Cox in the restaurant we eating together. They, they never talked. <laughs> they, they ate that never. They, they wasn't, so one of them wants a salt shaker, and they, he'd just start pointing, and the other would hand it over. We, they, look, they, don't ever, they never talk about anything when they're eating together. But Billy was very, very quiet. And, you know, he had a few home runs. I don't know how many, I don't remember. But uh, he was a pretty good offensive player to be as good an infielder. Now, who was a better in, who was a better third baseman in the league in those years and later years than Billy Cox? It was Brooks Robinson. Mm, yeah. Now, both of those two third basemen had the quickest hands. And Billy Cox had tremendous quick hands. And he used a kind of a small glove, actually. It was small compared to some other infielders. But his hands were so quick. But the thing Cox could not do that Brooks Robinson was a master at was the range. Robinson had great range. Of course, he was a bigger man and a longer reach. But Cox was anything that Cox could reach, he had it. He, he didn't know ever... He was just—he was just that quick, and um, but in comparison to the two, the only real difference to me was range. Uh, Brooks Robinson just had a, a, a wider range. He got two more balls than Billy might have got to. But Cox was kind of covered up with, uh, uh, you know, every spring training when we go to spring training, uh, there was always the writers talking about. Third base is going to be challenged now. Uh, Bobby Morgan might be the third baseman, or they traded. Uh, we, we traded and got Randy Jackson for the Cubs. He was going to be the third baseman, and so Cox was always on the bubble. Uh, is he going to stay, or is he going to be replaced? That's <laughs> not a comfortable place to be in when you're a player to have the writers talking about who's going to replace me. <laughs> But Cox always kind of came through, and he had a nice long career with the Dodgers. And he is a man who is kind of forgotten in terms of the superstars that, that were the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, it's funny that you mentioned 1953, and you were talking about how uh, Jackie went to the outfield. He is listed here on the 1953 baseball reference page as having been one of the three outfielders, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Carl Perillo. And so you have Billy Cox at third base, and you have Jim Gilliam at second base. Now, I decided to see whether there was a game played today, because obviously, like you said, uh, there were doubleheaders, uh, doubleheaders scheduled then, and there was a doubleheader scheduled on July 4th. But would you know what, Carl? There was a game on Thursday, July 2nd uh, in Brooklyn, 9,223 uh, uh, fans got to see you win your second, uh, got to see the Dodgers win the second game in a row. And guess who pitched that day, Carl? <laughs> well, I don't know. My arm just twitched. 
<laughs> and it wasn't me. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you you beat the uh, Philadelphia Phillies eight to nothing on Thursday, July second at Evans Field. Is there does, does anything come to mind regarding that? Now, of course, I, I have your pitching line here right now. Well, that was one of 350 games or something I was in uh, during my 12 season, so sometimes it's hard to pick out. But, you know, the Phillies, um, I pitched, I don't know if Roberts happened to pitch that day, but it seemed like I teamed up against Robin Roberts several times with the Phillies. And um, I, had a, I had a pretty good lifetime record with the Phillies. I think I was like 22 or 9 or something against the Phillies. And um, they had a good inning ball club, too. Uh, Andy Simonick used to give me some trouble, the catcher for the Phillies. Uh, I'd make a bad pitch on Andy Simonick, <laughs> and he'd make me pay. But, uh, yeah, well, that stretch in uh, July of 53, uh, you know, it was just unreal to me. I'd... I mentioned I had five. I was five and four the first half of the season. And Dresson, the manager, came to me one day and he said, "Hey, the all star break's coming up, and you've been snake bit the first half. You pitched a lot of good ball games, and you didn't get to win, or you got no, you got no decision. Or, but I'm going to take you fishing on over the all star break to a friend of mine upstate. I'm going to take you fishing and change your life. <laughs> By God, I came back and." <laughs> Second half of the uh, season, I was 15 and two, and I could have won another three or four, maybe two or three games at least, because we sensed the pennant early in '53, and I, I had about three or four starts before the World Series, and so they would let me pitch the first three or four innings just to keep in tune, but they wouldn't let me stay in the game to get the win. So I, you know, think of myself two or three times I came out. Uh, having pitched four innings and had a, maybe a three or four run lead, but I did. <laughs> Dresson was trying to bring Joe Black along, and so he bring Joe in, give him a chance to pick up a win, and I, that was okay. That didn't bother me. <clears throat> but uh, that that second half of the season in '53, which included a big July for me, <laughs> I. And I would have not remembered that had a fan not reminded me of uh, winning six games in July. Well, this was your sixth win of the year. Uh, you you had you had 14 shutouts, I believe is, is what it lists. You had 14 shutouts over your career. This was one of them, uh, nine-inning shutout. And you faced Carl Drews that day. And something interesting about the lineup, uh, Carl, is the fact that you were mentioning Jackie Robinson was in the outfield, but what's so interesting about today was that uh, uh, Billy Cox did not play at third base. Jackie Robinson did, and Gil Hodges played left field that day. Well, now that's now that's the day I don't remember. I don't remember <laughs> Hodges ever playing in the outfield. Isn't that interesting? And I'm wondering whether how long whether it got uh, uh, moved around later on in the game. You know these things they have all that that type of stuff. And I'm trying to see, but no, he, it looks like he. I mean, most likely, obviously, there's some things he just doesn't pick up on. But it looks like that he played the outfield, left field, uh, the entire game. And 
it's it's so interesting the way that that uh, uh, the stars align. The day that I interview you, you mentioned 1953, and it looks like you uh, started your July, your your fantastic 1953 July, with a win on this this particular uh, at the time Thursday. Yeah. Well, you know those those years are a long time ago, and my wife says to me. Call you missed three things on the grocery list. How do you remember all that stuff about the game you pitched back <laughs> 65 years ago? <laughs> I said, well, you know, when you go through the fire, uh, you, you don't forget a lot. But uh, I'll tell you what. I was a kid that never quit being a kid. When I got to the big league, and I, I was 21 years old, I was like a, a little kid that got into the candy store and I mean, I was so enamored with enamored at the fact that I was in a major league, I'm playing with one of the great teams. Because those things didn't historically mean so much as they do now. But to play with that that great lineup, it was just uh, just every day I was just like a kid, and I never I never left that feeling. In, in fact, playing 14 years, counting a couple of seasons in the minors and 12 in the majors, uh, I never lost that feeling. And even as we speak, I get that feeling that yeah. how rare and how fortunate to have played in the major leagues, to play with such a team, and played on the biggest stage, which is New York. I was always thankful that I got to play in New York. And you keep us young, Carl, uh, after 91 episodes. This is uh, always spectacular to talk to you about this. And, and you know, as uh, we will continue to, to speak uh, of wherever we decide to go about the uh, your time as a major leaguer. And, and thank you so much uh, for, for always joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. And uh, to relive some of those moments is, is a beautiful feeling for me. So. I'll remember you, Sam, on the 4th of July. Same here. Give my best to your family. And thank you all to your listeners for listening to us on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Have a wonderful 4th of July to your family and, uh, and all your friends. Take care, everybody. Thanks again. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.